0: Welcome to this week in sustainability. My name is Felicia Etzcorn. I'm a professor of chemistry at Virginia Tech. My co-host Jamie Ferguson has a student in the lab today, so she won't be with us, but I have a guest, Professor Helene Renard from Virginia Tech. She's in the School of Architecture and Design and I'll let Helene introduce herself and tell us a little bit about her educational background and
1: how she came to green building. Hi Felicia, thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be able to talk to you about green chemistry and some of the things I've been learning about recently. I am a retired professor from the interior design program and I studied architecture for my undergraduate degree at the Cooper Union in New York City, and then went on to do some practice and decide to go back to school about six years later and got a master's degree in architecture at Cranbrook in Michigan. So that's my educational background. And then I did some practicing in the architecture field in Phoenix, Arizona, among other places, and was able to learn a lot from the various people and firms that I worked with, large-scale, small-scale firms, and then had an opportunity to come and do a visiting semester at Virginia Tech in the architecture program, and was invited to submit my application for an interior design position. What was interesting to me about that opportunity was that I was doing installation art with felt, industrial felt, and so I had this kind of material interest in my artwork, but it had been up to that point completely separate from my teaching endeavors, so it was nice to be able to have an opportunity to merge those things, blend the teaching and the art interest together, and that's kind of how I came to have a full-time position here at Virginia Tech in the interior design program. So that was from 2008 through 2019.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Helene just recently took a course with the Parsons School of Design. Yes. And we'll be talking about that course after the first thing we're planning to do is to talk about My own kitchen remodel, which I did in, I think, 2010. The idea in the green kitchen design, redesign, remodeling was to use as many sustainable materials as possible. So there were a number of ways that I did this. And I, I also have a longstanding interest in wood. I love wood. My dad was a lumberman. He owned Etzcorn Lumber and Hardware Company in St. Louis for many years. And that was in his family for generations before that. And so I just adore wood of all kinds. And especially I have an interest in recycling wood. So I think when it comes to building materials, the consumer is kind of bewildered. Like, what are the certifications for different wood products? Are they sustainably harvested wood? And there's all kinds of issues having to do with tiles and the energy inputs into the various materials. Like, I had a lot of questions about natural linoleum versus bamboo flooring, and I didn't have a course. I didn't have the advantage, of course. So it was all me just trying as a chemist to think about what can I do? What can I do to make things greener? So I think about non-toxic adhesives, renewably sourced adhesives, and then even insulation. What kind of insulation is beneficial and energy efficient windows? So, So there were all kinds of thought processes that went into this.
1: Yeah, I I think it's really a wonderful coincidence for me that this is something that you did because I just for your listeners, I was fascinated in the course by the green chemistry segment in, in the online course that I took. And I thought, wow, this is something that people should know about that I would be excited to advocate for. Let me see if there's anybody at Virginia Tech who teaches this. And so that's how I I found you, of course. And as it just so happens, we already know each other a little bit from yoga class. So that was kind of a funny coincidence. And then to reach out to you, because I was thinking to myself, okay, how can I apply some of the principles that I've learned about in a project, and I'm thinking about a kitchen remodel, and then to find out that you have actually done this is wonderful coincidence so I'm excited that we get to talk about this today.
0: Yeah. So the first thing was in 2000 I was already thinking about sustainability and that was when I moved here and bought this house and it had, you know, this chipboard flooring under the carpeting. And the whole house was carpeting. I mean, upstairs was this horrid pink shag (laughs) in the master bedroom and, and this beige shag throughout the rest of the house. And my mom was a real estate agent. Actually, she was she first did interior design and she ran it out of my dad's lumber company. Anyway, when I was shopping for houses in Blacksburg, you know, she was a real estate agent. So I consulted with her. Okay. This house has so many features that I really like. It's south facing because I hoped to put solar panels eventually, which I did about the same time as the kitchen remodel. In fact, I was like, well, Can I put wood flooring down? I also have dust mite allergies. So I don't want any carpeting anywhere. I do have rugs, but they can be shaken out outside or beaten with a tennis racket on the line or something (laughs) like that to get them clean. And I have mostly wood furniture with some leather. Uh, Leather has its own issues. But the main thing was to get rid of that carpeting. And I was like, what, what's the subfloor? I can't see it anywhere. And she said, oh, pull the heating register out and look in there and you can tell what the subfloor is. And it turns out the chipboard goes actually all the way under the walls. Wow. What year was the house built? 88, 1988. Okay. So the floor has to go on top of the chipboard. And I identified this guy in Roanoke who was a salvage operator, and it was so lucky. He had identified an old Baptist gym that they were going to tear down, and it had this gorgeous red oak floor. It was thicker than the new stuff. And it had the tongue and groove linking. So because it was a gym, it was a huge amount of flooring. And I basically bought the whole lot from him, over 2,000 square feet that I had installed in the house. And it cost me more to do the recycled flooring, or reused really, than it would have to put new hardwood floors in. And that was because they had to sand off all those painted circles Mm -hmm. on the floor and they had to do three sandings and then refinish it. And so the refinishing, I asked for water-based polyurethane. At the time, that was the best I could come up with. And I'm not happy with that decision mm-hmm. because I learned after the kitchen remodel that water-based polyurethane has NMP in it, which is n methylpyrrolidone That helps solubilize the polyurethane, but it is a slightly volatile organic solvent. And it turns out that it is a teratogen so I don't think I've introduced the term teratogen to our listeners and that means it is toxic to fetus at the time I was still childbearing age and and actually had hoped to have another baby so that was an unfortunate discovery. You know, when, when you're doing the work yourself, you look at the can and you can investigate all the ingredients. But when you're hiring people, you know, I said water-based polyurethane, they did what I asked. So it wasn't the best choice. And I talked about the polyurethane floor finish, which I redid in just in the kitchen area. I was thinking perhaps rubbing alcohol, isopropanol, could be a substitute, but I haven't done any experimenting with making my own floor finishes. There are green polyurethanes. So in my textbook, one of the case studies is about a greener polyurethane, and they incorporate soybean oil, hybrid non-isocyanate polyurethane, or green polyurethane, by nanotech industries. The chemistry is, for the organic chemists who might be listening, instead of an isocyanate, which is a toxic functional group that has a nitrogen, carbon, oxygen, then instead of that, they use a carbonate. We use bicarbonate in baking soda in our cooking. So carbonates are quite non-toxic. The actual chemistry that goes into this newer polyurethane by nanotech industries is much safer. And I believe it's also water soluble. It's just as hard. It has just as good of an abrasion resistance. All the parameters look really good. These are essentially a polyurethane finishes that could be used now, but that wasn't available when I did the kitchen remodel. Something to keep in mind, folks, that you have to dig deep, but you can find greener materials. I am thinking of refinishing the dining room and living room floors soon. And I think what I'm gonna end up doing after I sand them, I'll probably wear one of my N95 masks (laughs) to do that because, you know, sawdust, well, polyurethane dust is probably not good
1: for you. Yeah.
0: And then I was either going to use a natural
1: oil or maybe even beeswax. Yeah, those those both sound like good ideas. Those are some of the things that I recognized from the course that I took, examples that they, they had of options.
0: What kind of oil do they recommend?
1: Well, I think de- it depends on the wood, but I remember linseed oil being mentioned as an option. And I think those things can also need ventilation and proper curing time, etc. So it's definitely something that requires a little more research.
0: So linseed oil needs to be diluted to apply it. And to dilute it, I think they have to use an oil-based or a VOC, volatile organic Mm -hmm. compound. I've often thought, well, why couldn't they just use ethanol? But
1: I don't think It's soluble in ethanol. And have you looked into the beeswax in terms of the application process? Because that seems...
0: I think it's a lot of elbow grease. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You have to just really rub it in. Yeah. I don't know. No, I haven't looked into it, (laughs) honestly. My dad had a screened-in porch added on the side of the house that I grew up in, and he applied the linseed oil directly out of the can And it took forever to dry, to cure. He was so upset. He was like, I knew better. I knew better than this. I know wood. You know, it was just sticky, tacky. Yeah,
1: I remember doing that to a table once and and having that same problem. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So moving on from the floors to the cabinet. For your interior design, I'm showing a picture to Helene of the kitchen as it is now, the old kitchen, the sink was actually closer to the left side of the windows and there wasn't room for much in this corner. So we had the sink moved over and centered on those windows. And that allowed us to put a corner cabinet, a rotating corner cabinet in there. The tricky part was where was the dishwasher going to go because the dishwasher used to be under the other window. So the sink was under this window and the dishwasher was on the other under the other window. So we moved it around this to the side. And this is a peninsula and it's a little tricky because these drawers don't open when the dishwasher is open. It's like one at a time. Yeah. They conflict with each other, but the corner cabinet's super nice. Yeah. And then this is cabinet for flat sheets. So it's real thin right next to the stove. Mm -hmm. So the cabinets are called wood mode and they're certified by Kitchen Cabinet Manufacturers Association Environmental Stewardship Program. I couldn't find, most of the handles were plated, like brass plated over some cheap pot metal or something. But these small knobs were solid brass. So that's what I got. So I'm going to go into a little bit more about the process that they use to make the cabinets. But do you have any questions? Well,
1: I was just going to say about the placement of the work areas. It looks like you've got a useful or efficient work triangle there. And I know you mentioned that the drawers and the dishwasher can't really be open at the same time, but that's pretty unlikely that you'd need to do that, right? So, yeah, I don't see that as a big drawback. And then I was just going to ask a little bit more about the cabinets, but I, I think you'll probably answer my questions.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, this is about the Wood Mode factory. It was established, I think, in 1989. Oh, no, in 1989, they added this regenerative thermal oxidizer that destroys. of the VOCs, VOC is Volatile Organic Compounds, so these are the solvents that they use for the finish. These VOC emissions are destroyed almost entirely at 1400 degrees Fahrenheit. They don't use any fossil fuel inputs which is really fantastic. To get it to that high of a heat, normally you would use some sort of natural gas or electric input, but they don't use any fossil fuel input. They use sawdust and wood scrap as the fuel. And this also eliminates their wood waste. So they're virtually using all of the trees that they cut down, which is just great. The wood fuel, Creates steam, and they use steam to operate the drying kilns, the heat, the air conditioning, and to humidify the office and factory. Right now, we're not thinking; we're thinking more about dehumidifying. But in the winter, you want to keep it humidified in the dryness and the cold. The steam condensate is actually recirculated, so even the water is not wasted, and they have no emissions from the wood fly ash. So it's just really great. So this was taken from the woodmode.com history page. Okay, any questions about their wood?
1: Yeah, so do they have more information or do you happen to know more about how they actually, I guess they press wood scrap together or how? what's the composition of the cabinet panel itself?
0: The panels are solid. Okay. Solid wood. Solid wood. And. I believe these are maple. These are maple. I can show you. I'm gonna take my computer into the kitchen. There's also these darker wood that I put salvaged stained glass. They're darker. They don't have much grain to them. So I think they're all the maple. They had a choice of a lot of different woods and colors. And there's not a lot of information about the finish, which that's something of interest to me.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And this door to the kitchen, I got that from Black Dog Salvage too. I finished that with tongue oil. I think it's walnut. Okay. But I don't know what the finishes that they put on the cabinets. They are solid wood. I think the drawers have plywood construction possibly. Yeah. Behind the fronts, but all the fronts are solid. I don't know if that's greener or not. I think it takes more wood to create solid wood cabinets, but that was just what I wanted mm-hmm. I love wood.
1: Yeah. One thing that would be interesting to investigate is more about whether their process is safe for the workers that work in the factory you know like i know that you mentioned that the process completely eliminates the volatile organic compounds more or less are there exposures in the factory for the workers doing that work is is something i'd be interested in knowing more about
0: what a great question they don't say much about that on their website but i think most of the exposure is in the kiln drying of the finish. And that is vented through this system where they burn it off basically and destroy 99.4% of the volatile organics. So I think it's probably a pretty safe place to work. It seems like they're so environmentally conscious, I'd be surprised if they're not also environmental justice conscious.
1: Right. That would that would make sense.
0: I haven't looked at this in five or six years. So I don't know how they weathered the pandemic. I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Right now. These are the hard things. Once you find a good company. Yeah. And it was actually ideal cabinets in Christiansburg. They sat down and talked to me and they were very good about abiding by my wishes and finding a source that was sustainable for me. I think they probably have other cheaper cabinets that aren't as sustainable. They were excellent at helping me find the kind of thing I wanted. Okay, the countertop countertops, I thought when I went into this project that I would want to use granite. And my mom said, don't get granite. She said, you drop a plate or a glass, even from cabinet height onto the countertop, it shatters. They're so hard. And then I looked into it and the embodied energy involved in mining granite is extreme, and they're so heavy. And then it's so much energy to cut it out of the ground, transport it to their factory, cut it to your dimensions and so on, that apparently granite is just not considered sustainable. And, you know, it's a mined material. So in green chemistry, we think if it's mined, it's not sustainable. Okay. So this was the best thing that Ideal and I could come up with. It's Eco that is made by Cosento. And it's a very durable surface. It looks brand new 10 years later. It has no dense chip discolorations. It's still smooth and it sort of looks like granite in a way. It's 75% recycled. The base of it is a resin that's made from corn oil. So that's green chemistry. That's a sustainable material. And then it has all these broken bits of porcelain glass and stone scrap in it, which gives it this interesting visual texture. It's funny, you can't see where it's dirty. You know, that also has an advantage. You can't see where it's dirty. I tend to just wipe down the whole kitchen after I cook, but I also can tell if there's something that's been spilled just by touch. Mm-hmm. And I don't use much but a little dish detergent and water, or I guess during the pandemic, I added a little bit of bleach, but that was when I was still thinking it was a contact virus. Right. And now we know from our colleague, Lindsay Marr, who's the engineer who really, she did an excellent job of figuring out and telling the world that it is aerosols. It's mainly by aerosols. I mean, it will live on the surface long enough that you can transfer it, but I was a little obsessive in sanitizing my groceries and and the counter that the grocery bag sat on and everything. And it didn't have any problem with a little bit of dilute bleach. You know, it was like a tablespoon in a quart spray bottle, not very much bleach. It hasn't changed at all over the years. So it's really nice. They molded it with rounded corners and rounded edges. So I don't hurt my hips on it. They molded it around the kitchen sink. Oh, by the way, I forgot to say I reused the stainless steel sink that was original. I did get a different faucet. You know, it was cheap builder faucets with the plastic handles that break anyway. (laughs) I got a stainless steel one that has been very durable for 20 years. And they were able to just reuse the stainless steel sink. This is essentially two pieces. I think there's one seam in the peninsula. It goes along the wall, the outside wall with the windows. And then there's one other piece that's just a very short, small cabinet, about a foot wide between the refrigerator and the stove. I didn't know if I had pictures of the stained glass. So so this is from Black Dog Salvage. Ideal Cabinets worked with me and took the panel out of the wood mode cabinets and installed the stained glass. Now, the downside of salvaged stained glass, I did find a stained glass worker who was willing to repair them, and she did a, a beautiful job, but I think this has led soldering. So when she was working with it, I was very concerned for her because there's a lot of fumes from this lead soldered stained glass. So I felt bad about that, but she just had to repair a couple of panes in each one. That's something that you don't think about is sometimes the old stuff is more toxic and you have to beware. So yes, I have lead. I think I haven't tested it, but I do think that this is of an age that it would be leaded stained glass.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful.
0: Yeah. And then the room closet, that's also a recycled door from Black Dog Salvage that I then painted with. a And the paint on the walls, low VOC or zero VOC paint. I didn't buy new appliances. We had had to replace those already. We had gotten Energy Star. At the time, they were energy efficient. Now, they're probably not that energy efficient and I could probably do better. But about embodied energy, you're better off using an appliance till it dies because probably for appliances the same thing applies to cars and I'm just guessing here. This is my swag, my scientific wild ass guess. <laughs> so I know half of the energy used by a car goes into its manufacture. Yeah. So you're better off driving a car into the ground. That much energy going into the manufacturer, it's a lot, and the little bit of savings that you make on gasoline in a more efficient car only takes you so far. And the same thing goes for refrigerators. I mean, unless it's a really old refrigerator that's in terrible shape and costs you $100 in electricity every month. I think mine only costs about $10 worth of electricity a month. I don't actually have very high electricity bills because I have solar panels. It's a natural gas oven, which I now, this is really not the most efficient type of cook surface anymore. What is now considered the most energy efficient cooking?
1: I mean, I think induction uh, is quite popular, but yeah, but I I believe that people still in kind of in the general public when they're looking at a new house, I think they still uh, like the idea of cooking with gas.
0: I uh, yeah. Uh, There's nothing like that instant flame and instant off. So this was just a low-end gas stove. Again, it served me very well over the years, and I'm very happy with it. No problems. The microwave, I thought microwave heating was very energy efficient because you don't have to heat the container up. But it turns out that household microwaves are not, The most efficient way to boil water. The most efficient way to boil water is gas, ultimately more efficient than electricity. You only want to boil just as much water as you need, and it should be in a covered container, and then you need to turn it off immediately. So that's why you have a tea kettle that whistles at you. So it's a little tricky to be super energy efficient, but it is an Energy Star refrigerator and dishwasher and a gas stove. In terms of the climate impact, um, residential buildings are about 20% of carbon dioxide emissions in the U.S. Commercial buildings are 18%. Now, this is 2005, so I don't know if this ratio has changed. Transportation is 33% and in industrial activity, which I think a lot of us think of as the major activity is only 28%. So residential buildings are a significant contribution and we should really be paying attention to our energy use. This was the idea that not just building green, but remodeling green. So over the next 30 years, so this is since and Five, 52 billion square feet are going to be demolished. 150 billion square feet will be remodeled. That's what Helene and I are really talking today about is remodeling. And 150 billion square feet will be new construction. I'd like to see that shift more towards remodeling because as much as possible that you can reuse rather than tear down and rebuild, It's more energy efficient, it's more material efficient, it's just really important. Green building savings, energy use, you can decrease by 30 to 50%, carbon emissions by 35%, water use by 40%, and solid waste by 70%. So that's a big deal, like not being material wasteful when you're building. When we think about green building materials, energy efficiency, Durability. And we've mentioned the ideas of life cycle analysis, sourcing it from renewable sources that aren't petroleum. We've also talked about the embodied energy of granite and trees and using every bit of the tree that you can. And then all the way through to the end products and their toxicity and the volatile organic compounds in our finishes. So we're trying to incorporate the principles of green chemistry. Do you have any final comments about the kitchen?
1: Well, I, I think it's interesting to maybe take a look back at it and say the guiding principles it seemed like were, I want to make this as green as possible. And then because of the scale of the project, you were able to kind of look at the various trades, or I suppose, talk to the The suppliers yourself and say, okay, this this is my goal. Help me achieve it.
0: Actually, just the retail. I didn't get to talk to Wood Mode. I got all that information from their website. So that's the advantage of the internet these days. We can get on websites and you dig into them. You can find out what the materials they use are. So that's really great. So I would like to switch gears now and ask you about your course and what's new because again this was 10 11 years ago I would like to hear about the new stuff going on that you learned in your course
1: yeah well for me I've been aware of the healthy materials lab for several years and I was teaching a materials and methods course to our second year interior design students and I you know was on their Email list and follow them on Instagram. And they also have a really interesting podcast that they do. The whole first season was on hemp, for example. And one of the co founders, Jansara Ruth, is someone that I actually went to grad school with. And then Allison Mears is her co founder. They talk about various topics within the course as well, because it's composed of many small videos. And then there are Uh, source documents that they send you to that you can download and do further reading on your own, as well as website links. It's an online certificate program, the one I did, that is set up to...
0: And this is the Parsons
1: School of Design. We'll put
0: a link in in the show notes. And what, what is the course called?
1: So it's Healthier Materials and Sustainable Building is the one that I took. They also have one called Healthy and Sustainable Affordable Housing, which is tailored to affordable housing providers. And I think it's a similar format where it's self-paced online.
0: And I think there was one that was actually had green chemistry in the title, wasn't there?
1: Well, it's green chemistry is part of the one that I took. It's okay. Yeah.
0: One of the modules.
1: Yes. And so let's see, it's, if we look at the syllabus, so course 2 building products and chemistry week 1 product chemistry and then in part 3 here we have John Warner hazards and toxicology yeah oh yeah so so that was that all of this was a revelation to me i didn't realize that according to John Warner traditionally in chemistry programs students do not need to take toxicology to earn their degree Which we're trying to change. Right.
0: Yes. John Warner is one of the grandfathers of green chemistry. I know him.
1: Okay. Yeah. And so so I was fascinated to see that they are actually partnering with big companies like Monsanto or Dow Chemical to find a substance that is going to perform the same way as one of their products without being toxic at all. So I thought, yeah, that's a really amazing mission to try and make chemicals that are put out now safer for the environment and for people, whether they're the people that are making the product or living in an environment constructed with that product.
0: Yeah, that's really, that's great that they're reaching out to this community because I've I've often thought that there needed to be more communication between chemists and architects. Yeah,
1: and that's what, just struck me about learning about this. I thought, well, and the way they present it too in the course is that ultimately a chemist needs to be part of the design team. If you're thinking on a really progressive broad scale, you know, if you've got a a company that's, or a developer that's doing multifamily housing for many millions of dollars, billions of dollars, then it really makes sense to have that investment. Up front, where you're trying to create, you know, even one product that's not going to be as toxic, yeah, or toxic at all compared to a traditional product and think about all the lives that you're going to impact with one small change.
0: And ideally, they just wouldn't even be making these toxic products. And exactly, we had Arlene Bloom on last fall on our podcast.
1: Yeah. And I've used the the six videos, the little videos about the six classes. I've used that in my materials course as a way to introduce my students to those ideas. And because I think they're good at explaining the topic in an easily understandable way for the lay person. And then also saying, here's what you can do about it at the end so that you're not just feeling hopeless and you have some sense of empowerment at the end of the video. So that was uh, one of the first pieces of information that I came across that made me more interested in this whole area. And I used the International Living Future Institute and some other different sources online that are databases that they also go over in this course that I just took that are starting to compile databases for designers specifically, if they are interested in finding healthier materials. So there's a wealth of information kind of growing out there and standardization and consolidation seem to be one of the challenges. As always, you know, you have these independent groups kind of coming up with their own initiatives and ways of moving in this direction. And then if you have too much of that, it can become confusing to The person trying to use that information.
0: Of course.
1: So it it was great to hear in this course from numerous different experts in their fields such as John Warner, and they also had people talking about vulnerable populations. So environmental pediatric specialists would talk about low-income housing and some of the challenges in those environments for the people inhabiting them and the instances of asthma tied to housing, et cetera. So there was a lot to take in, but I think the course does a great job of making the information accessible and then following that with strategies for designers to implement some of this knowledge that they've just gained into their design practice.
0: Very cool. Why don't we just walk through like the week's subtitles one by one? Maybe you can just read through them
1: to give people an idea of everything. My gosh. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah, it's a big course. So the program is four courses. The one that I took is four courses. It says here, this online certificate program has been created to provide designers, architects, developers, contractors, management companies, and facilities personnel with material health information. Wow. It's composed of four self-paced online courses, which lead to a certificate in healthier materials and sustainable building. The first and second courses provide an introduction to key topics in the field of materials and health for those with general or more specialized interests. The third and fourth courses are geared towards professionals in the built environment and those concerned with making a positive impact in product specification, installation, and maintenance. The goal of the program is to empower practitioners to make change with the knowledge that healthier buildings lead to healthier lives. And so it's both a complement to existing Parsons degree programs, and a continuing education course for professionals, which is the way that I took it. So then course one is called materials and human health. And you have a lot of introduction to the different specialists that you'll be hearing from later in the course. So they talk about life cycle of building materials Vulnerable populations, working with communities, how chemicals get into our bodies, which is something that also Arlene Bloom's videos address. And they've got life cycle of materials. Mm-hmm. Day in week two, we look at material systems, evaluations, and design. So they talk about toxicity and exposure in indoor environments specifically. And you hear from an indoor air specialist, Jeff Siegel, from the University of Toronto. Then how to avoid hazards is the next little section.
0: So actually, I want to stop there because one of my concerns is I had my energy use evaluated. They then added insulation over the Pillars in the building and tightened up all kinds of other insulation and sealed things and mm-hmm. did a bunch of stuff. But now my house is so tight that I worry about yeah. indoor air pollution.
1: Right. Yeah. Ventilation is important. It's true that with the building technology changing and our ability to seal up buildings, make them less leaky, we do have the problem of, well, we still need to exchange that indoor air for outdoor air.
0: Do they recommend doing it in an active way with fans? Yeah. Does it defeat the purpose? Because you're now having to put energy into exchanging the air.
1: Yeah, there are passive ways to do that, of course, to create openings up higher, or there are those whole, whole house fans, I guess. Right. Or just opening
0: windows. Yeah, but then like we've tightened it up and sealed all the crevices and <laughs> and then we've got to open it up again. It's like, yeah, I do that. I crack my window even in the winter. Mm-hmm. I crack my bedroom window because I just like fresh air. And it's like all this effort that went into, it just seems like a real challenge.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think the more we know, the more... We have to take into account, and that's where it gets complicated to balance all the factors that you consider in deciding is something healthy and sustainable. Right. So environmentally responsible as well as healthy for the occupants and all the people involved along the the line of manufacture.
0: Right. Okay. So then the second course is building products in chemistry.
1: Yep. They kind of go into biomimicry, and as we said before, the introduction to toxicology, how that's changing, John Warner, green chemistry, which was just like a light bulb in my brain.
0: You know, I got to say about John Warner, my textbook is called Green Chemistry Principles and Case Studies. And the 12 principles of green chemistry were written by Paul Anastas and John Warner, in about 1995. Mm-hmm. And so he's been thinking about it for a long time.
1: Right. And it was brand new to me. So I was really excited that more people should know about it Yeah, and start to find a way to incorporate it into the design practice. Amanda Kaminsky is another person that they interviewed or have speaking on several occasions throughout the course. And she has an interesting kind of background in construction and design. And now she's really working on the product end of things. And then in course three, we have healthier materials design and specifications. So the process that designers go through when they're choosing which products are going to be used in a project, in a building project, is is called specification. And there, it's interesting to hear from people at large design firms, such as Perkins and Will, who are in charge of the material libraries there. So in a large-scale design practice, you have all the resources in a room. So in our program, for example, at Virginia Tech, we have a resource library that the students can go to and look for products to use in their projects. Oftentimes these days, since we have so much access to information online, they do that kind of searching there as well. But it's nice to have the physical samples available to look at because things change under different light conditions, you know, the appearance changes and to be able to truly see whether something is going to be a good partner or complement to some other material. It's nice to be able to put those things side by side. So Mm -hmm. Suzanne Drake, for example, goes into the fact that what they do is meet with the design team on a project and talk about strategies. So for example, if it's a, a children's hospital, maybe their primary goal for that project in terms of sustainable and healthier materials is to say, okay, we don't want any products or substances in here that are going to contribute to asthma or any of the high touch surfaces that are carcinogenic. So those are the kinds of things that they're able to establish with the design team at the front end of a project so that they can better help them meet their material goals. Right. And then week two is finding and evaluating products. So that's, again, kind of more a deeper dive in terms of level of detail and process into how you specify products and make decisions, because oftentimes there may not be a product that is going to, say, meet the budget and have the performance. Right. criteria that are required for a certain type of project. So, you know, in hospitals, the example I just used, you have requirements for hygiene and ease of cleaning and so on. So there are many criteria to balance. And they go into that a little more specifically. And they talk about,
0: I like the hidden hazards, what might not be on the label. Yeah, That's really a problem.
1: Yes. And they talk about material safety data sheets that are a traditional way manufacturers share information about what's in their product and that you can often look at to identify potential safety concerns. But oftentimes it's more about durability and flammability and things that were considered important in the past and are still important, but there are kind of new concerns arising now. And a lot of the individuals interviewed in this course talk about the right tools and developing the right tools to identify health concerns in products. And they talk about also designers using their purchasing power, essentially, and asking the manufacturers for more information. And when the manufacturers become more aware of what it is that the designers are looking for, then they're more likely to change their processes because it is expensive to manufacture products. Oh, yay! You need to motivate them to make those kinds of changes. So when you have a designer that's worked a really large billion-dollar project, they're more likely to listen if that person is going to ask for a specific change to be made. If they hear that enough, then that could motivate people to make manufacturing changes.
0: That's awesome.
1: Yeah. So course four is about executing a healthier project. And again, talks about specific ways in which you can make decisions for your client or educate your client or kind of talk to them about what their goals are, and bring all that information into a process that leads to a healthier environment for the occupants of the building, as well as for everyone involved in the building process, the product production process. These weeks of this course, they have many interviews with people at firms that are sharing their experiences, because as people may be aware, there are many factors that go into getting a project built, designed and built and funded. And so wading through the codes, regulations, and how to still achieve health goals and making opportunities for impact in these projects is a complicated thing. And so it's nice to hear from people who have done it On significantly complicated and scaled projects and what their principles are. So Heather Henriksen in the Office of Sustainability at Harvard, for example, is dealing with enormous projects and talks about how they approach client meetings and builder meetings and what their process has been as they've learned over the years to make sure that their goals are met and the process is smooth and it's streamlined. So it's really valuable to hear about all that experience that they've had.
0: Okay. Wow. It just looks like a great course.
1: Yeah, it is. Thank
0: you.
1: I really recommend it. And, you know, besides wanting to tell everyone in the world that I have learned something about green chemistry and that they should too, I also really want to advocate for young professionals in the design fields and students in our program to know about this course, because I think it really empowers People to learn more about it and to figure out how it can be a tool for them to change the way they approach design.
0: Cool. Okay, so maybe you could wrap it up. Sure. Today we've talked about my very small project, which was one kitchen remodeling, and it was done 10 years ago. I served as my own interior designer. Because I have a little bit of knowledge about design and interiors, but I have these ingrained chemical principles that I wanted to incorporate as best as possible and kind of make a little showcase for greener kitchens. I have had my green chemistry students over for chili dinners, (laughs) Couple of years and just showed them this. And then we talked about the course at the Parsons School of Design, the new school that Helene Renard took and she's promoting for her students and really anyone in the field. It sounds like a, a fantastic resource. What are you going to do with it, with your knowledge?
1: Well, I mean, I, I mentioned to you that I'm interested in remodeling our kitchen. So I think. That's the first step. And I've also heard other presentations. For example, Jinsara has talked to other groups on Zoom events that I've listened to about the principles that she uses. And so, some things that I've heard from her, as well as have been mentioned in this course, that I'm thinking about incorporating are not using adhesives. And that is tricky because there's so much glue everywhere. And so, to the extent possible, um, if you use mechanical connections, then you're eliminating the need to figure out where do I get an adhesive that does its job, but is non-toxic. And so that's something I, I've been thinking about. Could I do that? And how would I do that? And then also one way to eliminate the concern about the paint is just not to use paint. Yeah. And something that uh Chinsar has done a bit of research into is lime lime plaster, and she traveled the world and found in various countries how they were using that material, which has been used for centuries. And I recently heard her talk about using it on wood. I think this was on a wall, however. So I was going to look a little bit into a company that she has worked with. I believe they're somewhere out west. Talk to them about their experience with lime and whether that would be an appropriate material choice for the walls in a kitchen. I'm not sure.
0: I just recently, I don't know what I was looking at. Maybe it was when I was looking at this course, there was a list of paints and one of them was a casein or milk-based paint. And I know when my mom used to do wallpapering, she would use Essentially, the adhesive was flour. Mm -hmm. It was basically refined wheat flour, white flour. Mm -hmm. It's pretty amazing how sticky that stuff is. Yes. (laughs) Probably not good for our digestive system, but healthier for the walls. And I have painted this house basically twice since I've lived here. And every time I just think I'm putting plastic Mm -hmm. on this building And I don't know, it's going to end up in the ocean someday. It's just not a good thing. Right. Even if it goes into a landfill, it's right. just not a good thing. So paint is one of the things that we should really rethink. Yeah, it's
1: just, a, it's a good opportunity to reconsider the way that we do things because it's been done perhaps this way for as long as we've been around, but maybe that's not the best way, you know, maybe there are other older techniques that are healthier, that are more appropriate. And there's an interesting project that Jansara and Allison are working on now. They're doing a house, I believe it's in Pennsylvania, that they're building with hemp lime. So I will see if I can find you some links and send you some of that information. I saw a video where they're basically shooting what looks like some straw with some plaster on it into the space between studs and a wall. So it's an insulative material as well as providing the wall surface. And then I believe maybe they're going to coat that with some hemp lime plaster. Nice. That's definitely a project I'm going to watch to see what they're doing. It's a funded experiment, so.
0: All right. This has been This Week in Sustainability. And we've had a wide ranging conversation today with Helene Renard of... Virginia Tech School of Architecture. And we talked about mostly interior design, trying to make it more sustainable. I think that's about it. I want to read. I thought about reading the carbon haiku. These are elemental haikus by Mary Soon Lee. But I decided people may not know, but brass is copper-based and it's harder than copper because of the other metals that they add to it, but I'm gonna read the haiku about copper. Copper, before the Bronze Age, before history began, bent to the smith's need. Over 10,000 years ago, people learned to work copper. This predates both the Bronze Age when people alloyed tin with copper to make bronze, and the invention of writing approximately 5,000 years ago. A lot of us have copper pipes in our houses. And I think Jamie and I talked about this a while ago when we talked about lead pipes and lead solder. So you can look back to that other podcast if you're interested in that. So we'll say our goodbyes. I have to say, think about it. Don't think too hard, but think about it.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Helene. Thank you, Felicia. This is really interesting. I, I so appreciate your sharing your process with me. Bye.